Hello, just a quick bit before this week's episode to let you know that we have a Patreon you can subscribe to if you like what we're doing here and you want more of it. You probably already knew that. We don't stop going on about it. What you didn't know is that you can currently get a little free trial so you know exactly what you'd get as part of your subscription. You can head to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes to get your first seven days free. All you need to do is pick which tier you'd like a free trial of. The Biggest Mates tier is the one that has all the extras in it. And then for seven days, you are free to listen to any episode we've released in the last six months. You can cancel any time or just leave the subscription rolling if you like what you find. It's charged monthly. And during any month, as part of that Biggest Mates tier, you'll get ad-free episodes of this show every Monday. You'll get a brand new episode of our new Manic Street Preacher show every month. Two episodes every month of The Ultimate Playlist, our themed playlist show, where we talk about all kinds of different music, different artists, different genres, different eras, and one or two bonus episodes every month, depending on the length of the month. That's two episodes every week. There's also other tiers to trial. One that is just the Manic Show and ad-free What Is Music episodes, and another that is just ad-free What Is Music episodes. But hey, if the first seven days are free, why not try a bit of everything? Plus, all tiers include access to the exclusive subscriber-only Discord where we discuss the shows, the bands we've covered, various music topics, and loads of other stuff, including some games that the friendly community have devised themselves. So head on over to our Patreon page now to claim your free seven-day trial. Go to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in our show notes. See you there. Um, I'm glad we finally figured out our schedules. I think I asked, uh, like, if you were up for this in, like, March or something? Yeah, been a, been a bit busy not leaving the house. Yeah, I mean, our, our <laughs> yeah, schedule is yeah, very yeah, difficult yeah. to work around. I mean, we're very busy guys, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's all because of us, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's that and, um, you know, uh, I'm assuming that your album and stuff got, got delayed, Yeah, right? to be honest, that, the that was partly why I politely declined at the time. It w- was not mm-hmm. because I was hideously busy, but more... Because the album, the second Anchor S record, was supposed to come out in March. And we very last minute had to pull the plug on it. So it was a case of don't do any promo, don't do any (laughs) press, pulling things frantically (laughs) and kind of being told to get back in my box for like eight months, basically. So it's nothing personal. Frustrating. Uh, what, what, What is it that I call you? Can I call you Catherine, or do I call you the Anchoress? Or hello, the Anchoress. Um, yeah, ca- ca- hello, Catherine Ad. Catherine. I mean, <laughs> people call me all sorts: Cad, oh dear, Cads, Catherine. Um, <laughs> Catherine's fine. Yeah, that's okay. Cads a good one. <laughs> um. Uh. So yeah. Uh. Hello, and welcome to <laughs> Do You Love Us? Yeah. A uh, critical analysis of the. Come on. Manic Street Preachers? History. Yeah, history, <laughs> cultural impact, and music of Manic Street Preachers. And you'd think after... This is our 44th episode, uh, and you would think I'd know how to introduce the podcast by now. We're going through the Manic Street Preachers discography, album by album, track by track, asking questions such as, does context matter when you listen to music? Does knowing the history of a band affect the way that you listen to their musical output? And more importantly, we're asking the question, do you love us? Us being Manic Street Preachers, not us, the host of the podcast. Uh, I'm Adam Scott Glasspool. I'm joined by uh, 
Steve Murphy. Yeah, you remembered my name. It's good. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and Lucas Way. The hesitation was because you weren't sure which order to do it in, were you? I was. Ju- I just always regret saying Steve's name. As oh, thanks. Yeah, this good podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still here. Uh, and we are joined today uh, by. Uh, I, you know, people have asked me what the Anchoress does, and I have to take a very deep breath. So, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, uh, producer, um, kind of, kind of session musician, occasionally that sort of thing. Occasionally, uh, the Anchoress, Catherine and Davis. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very busy perusing all of your Zoom screens for your like microphones, pop shields, and I spy some interesting instruments in the back too. So I'm being, I'm having a lovely nosy time here actually. <laughs> well, this well, mic- hilarious. This microphone cost me a whole thirty pounds off Amazon, Catherine. So yeah, I borrowed mine off a of mate. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the, hilar- the hilarious thing is the the one person who you can see instruments in the background of is the one the three the thir- uh, the one of us three who is probably the least <laughs> and the biggest talentless idiot. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I just have it because I like it. Looks good. <laughs> Looks good. And because it's exactly the same as uh, James Dean Bradfield's guitar. I mean, it's the same guitar. It's not exactly the same. It's the same. Exact same guitar. It's not the same. Costs just as much. It's, it's seen just as much action. <laughs> um, yeah, we're all we're all like in some way involved in music. I can see you're in your studio there, Catherine. I and am. so I'm also having a little look at the you, you, If you're interested leads, to know, see. you are currently hearing my voice through a U87 Neumann. And then it's going through Ooh. a um, the EMI Chandler Red 47 preamp. So I think if you added that up, I think it's about nine grams worth of yeah. tone. Uh, wow. we, we, we're gonna we're gonna start getting that once all this podcast money starts rolling in. I th- I th- we're gonna get similar yeah. similar setups. I think yeah. an yeah. upgrade is due. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, guys, I have actually just ordered a new mic, and it cost me a full hundred quid. Okay, that's okay. You ordered a new so, microphone. Yeah, I've ordered a new oh. mic. You didn't. T- this is not the time to be going into this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get USB or USB and XLR? Uh, USB, mate. Ah, that's a pain. Anyway, right. I live in a digital. I live in a digital world. Thanks for yeah, joining our meeting, uh, Catherine. That's such a pain. <laughs> that is such a pain, Lucas. Oh God. Um, right. <laughs> I've derailed it, haven't I, by talking about gear? Sorry. I, I, oh, see, man. I could talk about gear for um, for ages. Uh, I'm. I'm going through a little focus right scarlet thing you know when you just when you just want to record just like maximum two tracks because you're a solo artist that's what i've got um <laughs> Catherine, what is music i knew you were going to ask me this because i had a <laughs> sneaky little listen today <laughs> to your episode with dave erringer and um mm. So I'm going to try not to think about it too much. What is music? Well, t- to me, it is um, something that I'm obsessed by. Um, something that manipulates my emotions. It's like a drug. Um, I think it's something that elevates us all above the mundanity of the pointlessness of existence. Oh, very good. I mean, it's it's lovely and also savage. Yeah, really, <laughs> yeah. That's a great answer. Has, have you always felt that way about music, or did that suddenly sort of click into place at some point? I think I've always been a bit like that. One of my earliest memories is of sitting in my mum's lounge, having built like this weird kind of cushion fort, 
and just like crying to Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. <laughs> but like in, you know, like if you have a kind of like happy cry, like a kind of, yeah. like you feel good to cry. And I just was like really addicted to mostly sad songs, to be honest. I would have been about three probably. And that was all I wanted to do was listen to sad songs, sad music, and music that kind of moved me in some way. Yeah, it's, it's really odd. I don't know where it comes from. Because none of my family. You've always, you've always been an existentialist. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you were going to say none, none of your family are like musically inclined or anything? Not particularly, no. No. No, I'm I'm a real kind of black sheep of the family. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't I honestly don't know where it, where it comes from um, at all. Um, and how, how, was the goal from that point always then to become somebody who makes music no not at all again i'm one of those super annoying people that's managed to have a career in music without ever really wanting or planning to i <laughs> wow <laughs> i always want adam's livid <laughs> adam is sitting there just fuming <laughs> no i kind i kind of literally fell into it so i had quite a nasty accident when i was 19 um which kind of ended my dream and my obsession which was with classical ballet which is probably where the masochist in me was born. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of very quickly had to kind of throw myself into something else because I'm quite an obsessive person. And I guess music has always kind of been there in the background because obviously it's quite integral to dance and all of that. And I obviously I loved a lot of bands and I loved music at playing music. But it's so hard to explain just as a girl. I guess you just don't think you can do it. It's like, why would you? There, there aren't a huge number of examples of people doing it and so it didn't even cross my mind and to be honest I kept super quiet about my own musical kind of endeavours for a long time because I, I just was a bit embarrassed by it I'm not one of these kind of naturally performative people I was I was also interested in the idea of making records but but not necessarily in kind of getting up there and giving it the old jazz hands kind of type so, <laughs> so kind of more from the sort of production point of view than the performing point of view definitely yeah so for my i think it was my 18th birthday my parents said to me you can either have driving lessons or you can have a multi-track and i still can't Ooh. drive so <laughs> 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 yeah I, I was just really fascinated by how you made records and, and reading credits and just kind of becoming obsessed with you know particular producers and engineers and mixers and that was what appealed to me like this magic thing of putting an album together um creating something um that's very interesting because most people most people do that with artists so obviously me with the manix i'm i'm the big manix fan on on the podcast um i then tried to consume everything that that band had done i uh, did you do the same thing with producers then to be honest it probably was it was a manix for me too i mean i was a manix obsessive from about the age of 10 um, but then I think I kind of got dragged more into the kind of music production side of things because I, I don't know what the reason is why I think I guess just because I'm naturally interested in ab super absorbing tasks and repetitive tasks and things that leave me no space to have a life because that's quite convenient <laughs> um, so yeah I just I, I, you're going to get pulled one way or the other aren't you if you're obsessed with music either you're going to end up making it or you, you're going to end up consuming a lot of it and I think I was really interested in seeing if I could make some of my own. I mean, yeah, for, for, for someone who fell into it, you are probably one of the busiest musicians around. <laughs> like, I mean, you've performed under... So you, you released stuff as Catherine A.D. 
I mean, you know all this, but there's probably <laughs> listeners who don't. Uh, you played with Slim- Simple Minds uh, as their keyboardist, right? Yeah, that's from 2014. I joined Simple Minds and I left in late summer of 2018. And I think we did about, well, I did with them. It's got to be nearing a thousand shows in that time. So it was super intense. Oh, Christ. What? <laughs> Lord. <laughs> That's a lot, isn't it? Uh, does, that even, does that even add up? Is that like three a day? We, we were doing six shows a week. Um, Christ. And at one point, I think it was a solid five months I was away. Yeah, there were no slackers like the Mannix. Don't have days off in between or anything like that. Yeah, touring with the Mannix is like, uh, it's so relaxed and it's like really chilled and, you know, it's like a holiday. No, Simple Minds is like, um, it was really super intense um, baptism by fire because I'd not really, you know, I was used to kind of maybe playing to like 400 people and my first show, Simple Minds, was in Lisbon to, I think it was 7,000 people the first night. So that Mm -hmm. was a bit... That's quite the leap. And again, again, they found me. I never had any ambitions to do anything like that at all. and yeah, it, it, I, I I know I would hate me too if I heard me say this. <laughs> no, no, Lucas is joking. I think that that is the difference between, um, uh, I, I'm not going to name names because it's too negative, but it, it's kind of the difference between being very talented, which I think you are, and um, being able to network, which is something some people just cannot do. And so, you know, people fall into things because of talent. Um, and some people get where they are because they're very good at talking their way into things. Do you know what I mean? I do, exactly. And I'm really antisocial and really will avoid <laughs> yeah. at all costs going to any kind of party or having to be in a room where there's more than two people. So um, I am... Perfect this year, then. <laughs> do you know what? I've actually loved it. <laughs> Was it a bit annoying to have uh, an album finished by the time you suddenly had all this spare time to go into a studio yes and no i i I was thinking about this the other day because i've just started doing a few interviews about the art of losing and i feel like it's kind of been a bit serendipitous because it's an album that was about a lot of horrific things that i went through and Mm. i think by very good fortune i've kind of had this extra time to process it um and to get a little bit of distance from it as well, because I, I think had I actually gone into, you know, doing interviews and talking about the album and everything surrounding it back in March, I would probably have struggled a little bit and it probably wouldn't have been great for my mental health um, mm. to have done it. Whereas now I've got so much more distance from it. So it's probably a blessing in disguise, really. That's true. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. Obviously, I've only heard uh, the single, so I've yet to kind of delve into the album and and all of sort of like the context that surrounds that uh, and then right so you've done Catherine AD that's released as the Anchorist you've played with Simple Minds you've recently done the album with um uh oh god his name just completely escapes me Bernard Butler uh Bernard Butler thank you very much <laughs> how is it that you balance all of those things at once because they're all quite um stylistically uh disparate even even from you know from what i've heard the new single from the new album is quite stylistically disparate to confessions of a romance novelist that how do how do you then balance all of those things at once well the, the album with bernard was very much a collaboration record so we kind of met in the middle you know i did what i did he does what he did and we came right. together and made a new cocktail as i call it but we'd finished that back in like late 2014 early 2015 so before things went mental with simple minds and touring uh, so in terms of people are looking and thinking, how the fuck did she just do all that during lockdown? I didn't. Mm. It's just that the industry moves at this crazy slow pace. And sometimes it takes fucking years for someone to want to pick a record out. 
Um, so that was kind of done back then. So before Confessions of a Romance Novelist came out, Confessions of a Romance Novelist, however, sounds like oh, it yeah. does because it took so long to make. And I think to some extent, by the time I'd finished it, I was no longer interested in the music that was on it so of course my second Angarest record is going to sound completely different to that one it's been completely and totally my vision and production but also of course you're going to change over four years if, if you weren't kind of pushing forwards and evolving as an artist or band you know you'd be worried so do you feel compelled to make sure that that whatever you do next is sort of fresh and, and different to the last thing you've done it's not consciously done it's more just that I'm kind of a little bit obsessed with learning and kind of I'm just basically institutionalized because <laughs> I spent like <laughs> seven years at university and the moment I left uni probably I was pretty petrified that I would just stop learning and so all of the collaborations that I do even if that's just working with other people and touring with them it's because I just desperately want to keep learning and growing and don't want to look back and think oh I just worked for a couple of years I want to keep like doing more degrees essentially but doing it vocationally and i'm just a big sponge basically i mean you have, you have a phd right i do yes well i was doing that while i was doing confessions at the same time because yeah you're getting sure. the impression that i'm, I'm a workaholic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i don't have I a life like, i asked how you balance things you're like oh it's not it's not you know i don't actually have to balance those things you know i did that five years ago and then this two years after that but of course you were working on a phd and, I, and I had three jobs as well three part-time jobs at the same time sure because you know yeah. gotta live in london that's too too many <laughs> <laughs> but that's why the album took so long to make so you know i'd maybe sometimes only do like one or two days a week on it at most and then I might not work on it for like six weeks at a time um so yeah it was, it was all very kind of clawing my way to the end the end goal which was hoping that someone might want to put it out you know I had no great ambitions when I was making it beyond trying to make a record at all mm. it all yeah it's just I, I know it sounds hard to believe it's like I didn't have any grand plans at all but everything's kind of just always worked like that for me i just kind of I, I don't i don't think that is that that hard to believe i think that like truly creative people create to create you yeah. know it's yeah you know, like uh I, I i sometimes make music and i don't do it because I, i'm looking for fame or untold riches <laughs> because there isn't a lot of naturally though yeah, there's, there's not a lot of that going around in the, in the music industry <laughs> but um you know you you, you do things because you people want to you know people want to create don't they they want to uh, for me music is like a, a communication tool communicating things that i can't communicate in any other way um the, going back to what you said about constantly learning just there's there's uh i've heard tom york say a similar thing um where he says the best songs that you write um are always when you're learning a new instrument oh definitely yeah that's why i make gear acquisition person <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah that's what i was going to say like the, the judging from just the first single from art of losing it seems a lot more kind of uh synthy mm. so did was, i, I was wish i a... could like rotate you around my room and you could see the vintage synth collection to my oh. right and i can point <laughs> I i'll point at each that. one and i'll go track two track yeah. four <laughs> so i've i've been on your instagram and i've seen like uh, every time i see a picture of you playing a synth it takes me a couple of seconds to realize it's a different synth than the last photo that you were playing synth in. yeah all the money i earned with simple minds basically went into my studio no joke 
<laughs> so the OB6, Oberheim, is what you hear all over Show Your Face, the first single that was written on it. It is, I think it's 10 tracks of OB6, because Dave Erringer was mixing something the other day for me, and he was like, 10 tracks, Catherine. <laughs> you like to kind <laughs> of, uh, you like to keep it simple, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so how, how much does the gear sort of inform the songwriting process then do you start with a sound or do you start with a song on well, album two completely and totally because i had you know very little time to procrastinate compared to the first record so i might be you know back for a week off tour and it would be like right ob6 out of the box what are the sounds that excite me right i know i need to write something at tempo 138 right do it drums and conk tomorrow shit got to do it got to finish it so really under pressure rather than and that's where I think kind of my process has shifted a lot from you know I think when anyone starts writing songs you kind of think of it as like this kind of divine inspiration or something you know sit around Mm. and wait to be struck down by an idea the Nick Cave approach whereas (laughs) the truth of the matter is it's like bricklaying and it is just like put put the work in put the time in it's a craft you've got you know you've got to build it layer by layer Um, and that to me is the biggest shift that's happened over probably the last five years is just that I don't wait for inspiration to strike anymore I can't afford to do that I just have to kind of get on with it um and yeah pick a sound write a song that simple (laughs) just like that just that just that simple guys (laughs) I think like interestingly James Dean Bradfield has the same approach where he has like that workman like this is what I need to do. This is what I need to achieve, and it is like completely different to that um, that romantic idea of, like you said, like the the, the divine inspiration. And like, and I mentioned Nick Cave. Like he often talks about his muse and being in a difficult relationship with his muse and stuff like that. Isn't he talking about and drugs I'm, when he says that? Essentially, <laughs> he might be. He might be talking about heroin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to kind of hear it as like. Um, well, like you said, like like bricklaying, like building a house. Um, but I also think that kind of democratizes it too, and and it's kind of like you know what you said, you know, growing up, it was it what you wanted to do, and I said no because I didn't think someone like me could do it. And I think there's an awful lot of that with regards to kind of. I don't want to kind of get on the kind of class high horse here, but it is that no, please kind do. of <laughs> feeling a bit like oh, that's not for me. That's not a world that I have access to or entry to. And I guess, you know, the way I grew up, you know, my family are very much working class and it's kind of don't be fooled by my accent, which is, you know, foisted <laughs> upon me by <laughs> education. But it's kind of this idea that it's a craft and it's something that's not kind of... Uh, I'm trying to express this in, in, the, in the right way without kind of pissing people off, but, but that it's just something you have to work at. It's not something you're born to do. You're not like destined to do it because you come from a musical family or a great lineage, which an awful lot of the music industry is populated by people like that, unfortunately. Yes, it is. It's just about, you know, how do you become a good bricklayer? You just lay a lot of bricks. So you just have to write a lot of songs. And I, I remember James once talking to me about, I think it was Faster, and how he, I think he said he'd written like 16 different versions of the song, like completely different versions and yeah. that just completely flabbergasted me because i could only think of it as you know that perfect finished song that we all mm. know and the fact that he kind of there had been 15 other iterations of it it kind of really underlined for me the lack of preciousness about writing that it's just about getting it right and getting a good song did it not did it not also terrify you 
What, in, ter- the, in terms the, of the choice, you mean? Well, for, for me, the idea that, like, if I'm unhappy with something that I'm working on, and that quote pops into my head, I'm then thinking, like, oh, fucking great, I've got to do another 14 of these <laughs> before, I, before I hit the right one. <laughs> I don't know. I I find like a bizarre kind of perverse comfort in that because it's just basically like you can make anything good if you just put the work in. And I love that. That feels really accessible to me. Well, yeah, the fact that JDB took 16 tries to write faster shows that you know, if you don't nail it on the first try, don't worry, it took JDB <laughs> 16 tries to write faster. <laughs> that's true. I suppose, yeah, that's the... Uh... The optimistic way of looking at it, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so even if you're which talentless not, like, me, like me, <laughs> even if you're yeah. talentless like me, I might be able to write a good song somewhere. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, 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 definitely not. No, no, no. definitely not, Steve. <laughs> Sorry, no. So, Catherine, do you, when you say, you know, it's just about putting the work in, are you one of these people who would, you've got a 12-track album and you've got 12 tracks, or have you got 33 tracks and you pick 12 that you like and then the rest go in the bin, never to be seen again, and you might pick an idea out of it in 10 years time on the first one i think it, there was a pool of about 25 songs and then they kind of got whittled down i think it was there was 12 in the end but for the second record which is 14 tracks to be honest i actually only took two off so i've become much more diligent about just honing the stuff that i've got rather than writing new new bits and pieces but again that was born out of me just being so bloody busy and not having time to write new things not not having the kind and also just being really pig-headed about it just going right i'm gonna make this work it's going on the record yeah, I'm gonna yeah. make it good enough when <laughs> <laughs> the spare ones can be japanese bonus tracks oh they'll be on album three <laughs> yeah, there you go. yeah yeah nothing nothing gets wasted anymore there's no such thing as like b-sides or anything anymore uh it's a shame it's just stuff you put on spotify yeah, <laughs> yeah i suppose so um so how how important to you uh, we, we talk a lot on this uh, podcast about the context of music and i'm always fascinated with the position of the song and where it's coming from and what the artist was kind of going through in in their life when a certain song was written we're not you know we're not going to talk about anything massively in depth that you're uncomfortable <laughs> with or anything like that but how important is the context of not just your music but music in general to you for me i kind of think of it everything's refracted back to the manics i mean not just because we're doing the manics podcast because that is literally how i learn about music and see the purpose of music to me it's there to kind of guide and inform and educate the listener and to some extent on a good day i would hope that i could reach to do that with the anchoress for even like one percent of the people that listen so i've always tried to kind of follow that kind of guideline i guess that they kind of set out this idea that if you listen to something that I write, I want people to be able to discover something new, a, a book that they haven't read or an idea that they hadn't thought about before. And so for me, the concept is the foundation underneath it all. I'm not particularly interested in writing things that are directly confessional, hence the title of the first mm. record, which is a sort of joke that seemed to pass a lot of people by. Um, <laughs> people think you were actually a romance novelist making yeah. some confessions. Well, the idea was the collision of this idea of what happens if you put the confessional, which is supposed to be autobiographical, together with the fictive, you know, fiction, yeah. novel writing. If you combine the two, then you can't ever tell whether someone's telling a lie and therefore you can't project it back onto them as an artist. Hence why I didn't want to go under Catherine A.D. I wanted to be the anchoress because I was sick and tired of being cast as a kind of, you know, female confessional singer-songwriter because it's boring and it's not interesting to me as a as an artist or as a writer. Um, but yeah, did, did, to... you, did you feel boxed in by that sort of impression then? 
not boxed in. It was just preemptive strikes, to be honest. Right. <laughs> it was like, no, if you're even going to make a reference to this in the review, then it just shows you've not read the press release or you've not understood the concept. Um, it was just, yeah, a preemptive strike of not wanting to be pushed into that kind of silo, which I think women had been up to that point you know women as a genre that kind of thing and it, and also the kind of inference that there's no craft in that either that somehow if you're a confessional song, songwriter that there's no effort involved in that like you just oh you're just speaking your feelings well that's the, the yeah, cover yeah. of the new record um is me kind of vomiting up a book mm. onto pages and that again was a little kind of joke for me about this idea that it's supposed to be some kind of effortless purge of my feelings onto the page um and that is what songwriting is, which is, is just bullshit. Um, it's never that. It's never, ever that. But but often, you, I think when, you know, if you look at the way music journalists kind of talk about the kind of canon of female, great female songwriters, Joni Mitchell, Tori Amos, Kate Bush, it's always from that kind of personal autobiographical slant. Yeah. Uh, but sort of spoken about as if there's very little skill in that. And I, I remember interviewing Tori Amos once and her talking about this and all her frustrations around that as if it was, you know, she just gets up on the morning and kind of like trips out a little song about, you know, her miscarriage and that's, you know, job done for the day. Easy, <laughs> easy. easy, just like that. It yeah. just rolls off the tongue. And, yeah. you know, all the years of training at the conservatoire um, and the Peabody count for nothing. And, and It's not important. Yeah, I remember that really striking a tone <laughs> with me and just feeling like, I'd never really thought about that before. I'd never thought that to write from a kind of autobiographical standpoint as a woman was that loaded. Um, and she really kind of opened my eyes to that and made me think perhaps it was my obligation to not do that and to try something a bit different. Um, and then I'd kind of given up on that by the second record and it's quite quite autobiographical, to be honest. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, as you said, that the second album was sort of influenced by by a string of sort of uh, less than pleasant events that happened to you. So that's an interesting uh, dichotomy then, is that you are now kind of almost going by a character name as the Anchoress and kind of putting up that sort of wall between you, the artist, and you, the performer. But the second album is also quite autobiographical. Yeah, but not a conscious <laughs> choice again. It, w- it was more a kind of a case of literally the last five six years have been an absolute shit show for me personally um you know so much death and grief and loss and awful things that I don't think I could have written about anything else it just would have been impossible it would have been more effort in a way to have turned away from it and there was certainly nothing easy about writing through those circumstances or writing about them um and and in a way I guess it's 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 nice to have done what I did on the first record and kind of mediate between those two personas and that kind of frees me up to just have done what I couldn't have anticipated or said I, that I would do with The Art of Losing. It was not a plan to, to turn right. against everything that I had said I wouldn't do on the first record. Um, I said to someone the other day, it feels a bit like my kind of holy bible. It's one of those where I'm not sure I'm going to ever want to listen to it again. Mm. Um, but I hope that other people find something in it that speaks to them about their own kind of personal traumas and, and losses. Um, and that, that'll be a job well done for me, but I just basically never want to have to hear it again myself. That's yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, was there any kind of sort of catharsis to working in that way? Probably not at the time. I, I think perhaps in hindsight, yes, you know, I'm a couple of years at, 
away from that now. Um, ask me again in 10 years. Right, yeah, that's true. <laughs> when, when we'll okay. be doing the uh, anniversary tour or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that, that's that other sort of romantic notion about um, creating or, or, or writing music through difficult circumstances is that it is the ultimate catharsis and it's the artist's way of dealing with it. And then once the album's out, all of the grief and the pain and the loss just goes away because the artist has dealt with it now. Yeah, and I remember seeing Bjork a couple of years ago. I think she stopped touring in the middle of Volnacura, um, because she just couldn't perform it anymore. And that kind of really struck a nerve with me, kind of thinking, thank God, there's a worldwide pandemic. How convenient, because maybe I won't have to go out and tour this quite yet. Because <laughs> yeah. it probably wouldn't be, you know, the, the kindest thing to do to myself. But... Um, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I, I'm feeling my way through all of this myself. It, it's like the first time I'm kind of having to talk about it even. It's so strange because you kind of, it's a little bit like that moment when people die and you just kind of float above yourself and look down and see yourself talking about something or doing something. And I'm like, this is really strange to be talking about this record that at one point I thought I might be dead when it comes out. You know, that's a really kind of strange experience to go through. I remember the night before I went into one of my surgeries, writing an email to Terry Hall going, here are my instructions. If I if this goes wrong, you know, if tomorrow doesn't go as planned, this is what I need you to do to make sure the album comes out. Here's my note, my liner notes. Here's my mix notes for Dave. Um, it's, it's pretty kind of, and I was doing this like four in the morning the night before I went in and um, yeah, workaholic me. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you balance those things? <laughs> Yeah, it was a pretty strange time. It, it, we can laugh about it now, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think she appreciated that email very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that's a distressing email to receive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've also then, you know, we we've talked about uh, the manic sort of briefly uh, through through kind of navigating what we've already navigated, and it struck me that you said you kind of were obsessed with them. Um, uh, since you were about 10 is that right um and that you know you kind of struggled with the idea that you couldn't maybe follow a, a path in in music because of your kind of working class upbringing and background D did the manics sort of unlock some of that for you for me the manics kind of stood more for like learning and opening my mind culturally rather than kind of setting any kind of musical ambitions for me um for me their impact on me was more, you know, I started reading books. I started going to the library. Mm. I was the first in my family to go to university um, because of them. Strangely, I didn't look up to them and think, oh, I could be in a band. It, it just because they didn't look like me. They didn't. It, it wasn't that kind of relationship for me. It was more kind of like, oh, you can be smart and glamorous, too, and people won't hate you. Um and that, to me, was the revolutionary idea, not picking up a guitar. It was only much later on that I kind of saw, I guess, some of the unconscious seeds that they probably planted in my brain. But it was so much more about the books and the kind of films and just broadening my horizons. I'm certain if I'd never heard them that love my sister dearly, but, you know, she works in a call centre and she manages a team in the call centre. She's very good at her job and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But that was never going to be a life that I was going to be happy with. And I, yeah. I, I do shudder to think what would have become of me had I not heard the Manics on the radio. 
it's it's frightening really frightening oh that's it's interesting that that um that the inspiration from the manics was not musical but you still ended up going into music because of the inspiration that they gave you um i think nikki himself has said that they've inspired more people into further education than they have bands <laughs> yeah yeah i think which so. is it's such a spot-on way of looking at it um how 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 deep did you go into their sort of like literary references and stuff were you uh oh i was obsessive i would write i'd go on the internet and like look up all their old interviews and like write lists of stuff and then start ordering like out of i don't know if you had this at your library like out of area because they would have to order out of area to get andrew dawkins mercy and i remember my mum seeing at my bedside table i probably would have been 12 at this point and if i don't know if you've read mercy it's quite a brutal account of her um multiple rapes and my mum just picking up the back and going, I really don't know if you should be reading this. Let's have a conversation about it. And me going, <laughs> it's fine. Like, Malik's <laughs> reading this. <It's... laughs> and years later, I had a, I actually chatted to Patrick Jones about this last time I saw him. And, I, and he was like, oh, yeah, that was me. That was my, that was kind of my fault that they, they were reading that. And it's so strange when the circle kind of closes and you meet the people that had that kind of effect on your life. It's just never stops being a head fuck to me it's it's really weird but <laughs> yeah that 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 is a, a, a tricky one uh, i mean they say don't meet your heroes right for that exact sort of reason but then you ended up working working with your heroes, with your heroes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what what was what was that like well it's weird because i'd met nikki quite a few years beforehand when i i interviewed him when journal for plague lovers came out and it was really strange because we ended up getting locked in a dressing room at the roundhouse for, it must have been about two and a half hours, like accidentally locked in the, the dressing room and ha- doing right. this really, really You lock- weren't that obsessed. You didn't <laughs> no, I think walk the in lo- and lock oh, no, the door. Locked. The lock broke or something and like, we couldn't yeah, get oh, yeah, out. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it and broke. Yeah, yeah. Doing this interview, really, really long in-depth interview with him um, about Jennifer Plague Lovers and ever, you know all the questions I'd ever wanted to kind of ask him. Um, and doing this really great interview and I remember you know afterwards he'd kind of fed back to the PR it's like one of the best interviews he'd ever done and you know who was I and blah 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 didn't see them again for years you know personally and then I joined Simple Minds and I met James at the Cure Awards um because Simple Minds are one of his favorite bands and I think I uttered the immortal dickhead line when I saw him (laughs) of he went oh you're in my favorite band and I went you're in my favourite band too. <laughs> and then wanted to shoot myself in the head thinking, you complete twat. And I still feel like that every time I speak to him, to be honest. <laughs> it's just, I never stop just feeling completely in awe of him. And that probably goes back to your question actually about why didn't they inspire me musically? Because how many people look at James Dean Bradfield playing guitar and think, oh, I could do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because he's just yeah, so, yeah. he's so good and he's such a virtuoso player that it feels unreachable and unobtainable. It would be like listening to Jeff Buckley and thinking, I might take up singing. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, be realistic. It's, it's, there's very few people that achieve the level of skill that James has, but also the kind of the individuality of his stylings as a guitarist too. He, you know, once in a generation, when he plays, you know it's him playing. And, and that, I've been lucky enough to play with a couple of people who also have that and it's very very rare yeah james definitely has that steve i sent you the beginning of a podcast which currently has like a secret guitarist yep it's called the socially distant sports bar 
and it has a, a guitarist playing the uh, the grandstand theme on acoustic guitar, and I was just like, "That's James Dean Bradfield." <laughs> You can hear that it's James Dean Bradfield. Yeah, and then Adam, because he's a he's an obsessive just like you are, Catherine, he wrote me a paragraph this long on my phone that I had to scroll through to tell me why that was him playing. <laughs> well, you can just tell hear. by the upstroke. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he uses an upstroke. A downstroke where an upstroke would be easier and like there's dead notes that he uses to keep the rhythm and stuff like that. But yeah, no, no one plays guitar like him. It's very distinctive. I should send you the outtakes from my record that he plays on. It's just, I just, oh my God just so i was like oh could you just play some guitar on this track now because he sung a duet on the album with me and that was just the one big ask that i thought i could kind of get away with and then mm. i think i was in the middle of italy somewhere and just kind of went oh james do you mind letting this other track and if you if you've got time do you mind just like putting some guitar down on it thinking yeah. he's just gonna go fuck off catherine like <laughs> busy um and then just getting back show your face in the middle of like sicily or wherever we were and just going what because that sounds like all the records I grew up with and it's on my song and that's just, my mind is blown. And I know <laughs> I should be really cool about it, but I'm just not. I wouldn't even pretend to be just like really <laughs> cool about it. It's just, yeah, still amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's, uh, like, the, sh- Show Your Face, the song that the uh, the guitar is on, is like, you know, I, I, I'm sure it's very embarrassing for you to hear compliments but it's, it's a great song <laughs> and, and in, gen- in general it's, it's a really great song but uh in, in particular james's guitar on it is uh it's insane it fits the song so well and it's um uh it's it's a testament to to him as much as it is you for writing a great song that he can just drop into any song and work out what needs to be done with it do you know what i mean yeah, we'd had a conversation about kind of what I was looking for him to do. We talked about magazine, um, you know, kind of angular sort of post-rock kind of sounds. I knew exactly mm. what I wanted. And he literally, I think he must have knocked it out in an afternoon you know, and had a lot of fun That's doing it. That's mad, isn't it? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> exactly. Um, so who would ever aspire to be like or think that they could be as good as him? So, yeah. That's the most recent of your of your collaborations, but obviously um, you are also on uh, Resistance is Futile. Uh, you did Dylan and Caitlin with them. I do vaguely remember doing that, yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so our, our Resistance is Futile episode hasn't come out yet, but we have recorded it. Um, so y- you had that very long, um, somewhat suspicious interview with Nikki, where you got locked in a room <laughs> together. Uh, you told James <laughs> Dean Bradfield that he's in your favourite band, <laughs> and 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 was it was it then? Did, did you toured with them, right? Because I remember seeing videos of you doing Little Baby Nothing. Yeah. So the next thing that happened was people started sending me little clips that they were playing Long Year, the first track from Confessions, before they went on stage. Mm. Oh. So a couple of people were just sending me little great. snippets because I was on tour at the time and thought, oh, maybe it was just a one-off, and then I heard through. Gillian Porter at Hall or Nothing that Nicky really liked the record um, and he know you know he reads like the music press quite obsessively yes yeah 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 he and, can tell you the chart position and I everything. had I had done a yeah. little piece for an online magazine about my favourite Manix tracks and kind of dropped another clanger because I'm really socially awkward about <laughs> you know if they ever needed anyone to sing Little Baby Nothing with them I kind of know the words um <laughs> <laughs> never thinking for a moment that anyone would read it 
from the band um and then yeah i think i got a call this would have been 2016 they asked me to support them at the eden project and i think it was about a week before that um i'm trying to remember who it was that called me and just said you know do you know the song little baby nothing nikki wants you to come and duet with them on it oh my god that's terrifying i I, I think i I literally again i'm not going to pretend that i'm cool because i literally bounced (laughs) up and down and screamed on the spot like a little girl um for about 10 minutes and yeah that was sort of how it started really um and i supported them a few times i can't even remember at the moment it's all a blur when you're touring it gets a bit um and then I think I did it with them at the Q Awards at the Roundhouse. And James kind of tapped me on the shoulder afterwards. And he's like, Catherine, I need to have a word with you. And I'm thinking, shit, what did I do? You are, you are fired. I am done. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've done something wrong. I've pissed them off. I have like, I don't know. I've done oh, or said man. something. Because I'm, I'm always just worried about pissing people off because I inadvertently do things that are, you know, weird um <laughs> oh i feel i feel that energy yeah i can relate to that <laughs> and so he, he kind of takes me into this side room i'm thinking oh my god you're gonna get a bollocking from james and Bradfield. you're gonna get a bollocking don't, don't cry don't cry <laughs> and then he's like how would you feel about being our caitlin and i was thinking i i don't know what you're talking about I, i'm just like <laughs> nodding looking and thinking all yes. will be revealed in a minute won't it and then he's just putting these headphones in my ears and playing me the song and um saying you know we've been talking about it and we'd really like you to be our caitlin to to our dylan thomas and yeah that that was kind of how it started um yeah not a bollocking but an invitation yeah (laughs) now the little behind the scenes question that i feel like i have to ask then is when he put the headphones on your head and you listened to the song was he singing your part or was there silence i honestly was someone else singing i can't remember because that's what happens oh, when you're traumatised, right? You can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, yeah. Exactly. I was probably so just shit scared that he was about to, like, I don't know, tell me off that I, I cannot really for the life of me remember. I probably got the MP3 somewhere and I could have a listen and let you know. But I think he was probably singing it. Yeah. I like to imagine he's singing in falsetto. What, he, yeah. He's what doing, he's doing his lady voice. Yeah. He's doing his lady voice. <laughs> God, the idea of being bollocked by James Dean Bradfield is scaring the shit yeah. out of me just thinking That's about it. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Awful. Yeah. I, 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 I did once. I think the, You know he could batter you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> the only time I've ever got close to it, I think, or, or a disapproving look, I think, is about as much as I've got, is when <laughs> I was that. sort of giving him some notes on um the track that he sings on on the new anchorest record i gave james dean bradfield some notes is all you need to know um and yeah and then i kind of realized you don't need to give james dean bradfield notes let him figure <laughs> it out so yeah i think i've got a raised eyebrow i've had a st- i've had one of james's stern looks and they are withering <laughs> what did you what did you do uh it was what? like it was the uh first time it was either the first or the second time that I'd met him and I just wanted, you know, I, I don't want any grand interaction with him because, you know, he's terrifying. Uh, and <laughs> and um, uh, I, so I, I gave him something to sign and I said, like, oh, good, it, was, it was a good show. I enjoyed the gig. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, I turned around to leave after he had signed it and I just heard from behind me, Oi! And I turned back around, and it's James Dean Bradford, and he put his hand out to shake my hand. Oh, what? And you just and I just turned around and <laughs> started walking away. So he What's went, that? Oi. 
<laughs> and and then I had to turn around and go, oh, I'm so sorry, and then shake his hand, and I got that stern <laughs> look. And was that the firmest handshake <sighs> of your life at that point as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Horrendous. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. <awful. Yeah. laughs> um, when you were recording Dylan and, and, and Caitlin, it's kind of related to the sort of, I guess, who sings what. Did you then record the whole track, like just you did all of the vocals and then they edit it, or? I mean, did you record it separately? Where you stood back to back, or were you staring into each other's eyes? <laughs> no, it was singing into the same mic. Yeah, yeah you've got to be doing that. I, one. I hate to burst the bowl here, but it's done completely separately in a different part of the country. No, because I would, no. I would boring answer because I was touring with Simple Minds so much. So I would have come back, had like a weekend to do it, did it in my studio. Um, it was on the I'm trying to remember it was the Abbey Road mic actually, which I subsequently decided I hated and sent back because it didn't I didn't it was too toppy for me um but anyway it was done <laughs> not in the same room in a different part of the country I edited it and comped it and sent it across so yeah it's uh it and was... is that the same for the backing vocals on Vivian yeah ex- all, all exactly the same exactly the same oh, always, I couldn't that... I couldn't have sung in front of them that would have been yeah yeah that's true yeah it would have been I don't know I, I feel like you just sort of at that point it's like an out of body experience, isn't it? And you just sort of, like you were saying, like this is what needs to be done. I need to lay the bricks of this vocal track, even though James D. Bradfield is staring at my face. <laughs> exactly. And he, he did send me notes back. Actually, it was hilarious. Some of the notes were like, "Can you sing less Welsh, please?" Uh, was one of them about the pronunciation in particular. <laughs> oh, interesting. Words and me and Dave had a bit of a because it's a very Welsh song. Yeah, it's like, can you sing less Welsh, Catherine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is rich coming from him because sometimes he sings very well. Yeah, I think Dave's got some great yeah. stories about the pronunciation around some of the singing and the, w- the way he has particular ways of pronouncing certain words, which is very, very him, isn't it? It's, it's a very yeah. kind of, it's almost Germanic, I always think. Yeah, the way he says heard on some of the songs is, is uh, incredible. It's another <laughs> thing that makes him like uh, quite distinctive as oh a that's a valley thing though because my mum and grandma exactly the same it's the kind of lifted h as i call it the yeah yeah i can't ah. do it <laughs> yeah. i've got too many teeth <laughs> <laughs> um it, it's i it's such a, an interesting song as uh, uh like in the context of that record because it's um one of the only songs it is the only song on that record which is sort of like sung in character. It's a conversational piece. Was was that something that was kind of very easy to do, sort of sing as a character? Yeah, I think, again, like James kind of gave me a real kind of strong sense of what he wanted. I mean, being no doubt, he is in complete control and has total focus about the production of the records. Um, we talked a bit about kind of, you know, toxic relationships, toxic dynamics. He... he was there emotionally in terms of what he wanted to bring out lyrically from from the context of the conversation between the two characters remembering that they're real people also um yeah yeah, he just kind of gave really good direction for it and as i say you know we went back and forward a few times i think it did it like three or four times before he was happy with it that's yeah i mean that 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 seems like that actually seems like not that many for James, who like <laughs> I think I think Dave was talking about him laying down the guitar for the verse of the masses against the classes something like thirty times because it just wasn't quite right in in, in, in his words. Um, but yeah, they do tend to have like this sort of 
very specific vision and a grand plan as well for the album. As 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 someone who collaborates on one track, are you let into that vision? Or no, not at all. I mean, when I really? I, heard, I heard Vivian before I heard Dylan and Caitlin, and then I was kind of building this picture in my mind that it was all like literary references. I thought maybe it was about Vivian Elliot first of all. I didn't know who the song was about. Um, and I, I thought, okay, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's an album about kind of different literary characters. Um, so I was conjuring up this completely alternative <laughs> narrative like of an album, album. Yeah. that they hadn't actually made. Um, no, I mean they're very, you know, obviously it's, and I didn't breathe a word to anyone about having done it for a really long time as well. Obviously, again, well, I bet ones. you really wanted to as well. Do you know what? <laughs> I just didn't want to get into trouble. That was the, yeah. my kind of overarching <laughs> thought was. Don't get a bollocking from James, basically. <laughs> <laughs> all comes back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is terrible. God, I must be giving the wrong impression here that he would ever, ever shout at anybody. But it was just not wanting to displease them kind of collectively. Yeah. You know, they mean, I look up to them so much. There's that kind of feeling of kind of just wanting to do well and be given that pat on the back from them all the time. I don't think he'd need to shout. I think even just a mild disappointment from him, you just feel crushed inside. Yeah, feel <laughs> Let, let's never test that theory. <laughs> no, yeah, 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 yeah. Nikki would shout. Like uh, Nikki uh, uh, kind of comes across to me as like the uh, the loudmouthed one, you know. And yeah, James is the stern teacher. <laughs> teacher, good. That's how I view him in my fantasies let's not go into my fantasies <laughs> James Dean Bradfield is a stern teacher uh, it's all getting a bit it's all getting a bit dodgy very now, fan isn't fiction it? isn't it yeah so the the most recent uh collaborations with uh with with James and, and and with the Mannix like I've um going back to sort of how the Mannix have influenced you um they obviously do a lot of kind of uh I guess you'd call it social commentary on their songs. And I see a lot of that in Show Your Face. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the video um, starts with the Trump quote, which is still one of the most horrendous quotes I've ever seen in my fucking life. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like to me, uh, you know, listening to it, the song seems to be about the anonymity afforded to fuckwits on the internet. Um, have you had to deal with a lot of fuckwits on the internet? Am I allowed to say no comment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can absolutely invites, say no comment. It invites more fuckwits oh, on the internet point, yeah. whenever I kind of comment on stuff like this. It's, We've you know, had some weird messages just because we're even slightly sort of putting ourselves out into a public sphere. And as a, like, I can only imagine what your direct message inbox looks like as a woman in the music industry interestingly actually it's fairly i think i just come across as being quite scary um and unapproachable so i for sure for sure yeah definitely. Yeah. i feel like i <laughs> i got off quite lightly on the whole to be honest it, it yeah. I, d- I don't get the kind of dick pics that my friends who are also female who are in the music industry get Jesus i think people Christ. think that i might like chop it off and send it back to them in a box if they <laughs> which you that. should to be fair <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but that's why it's nice having that kind of constructive persona a little bit to be honest because it does protect you I think but but it's kind of go back to the song you know show your face was about kind of toxic masculinity and hmm. I just remember it was around the time the wine scene story kind of broke and also the Kavanaugh um, Supreme Court um, yeah. hearings and I just remember watching that and I was making the record at the time and just 
texting back and forth with some of my friends who are lawyers, just feeling really bleak about the world and about how men in power get away with so much. Um, I'm wanting to talk about that in a way that wasn't autobiographical, but was, and I guess it is all kind of seeping through thematics, isn't it? You know, message songs, but without talking about yourself, I guess. Mm. Yeah, it comes across as a very sort of um, defiant song, which I like a a lot about it. It's difficult to describe because I don't want to say like, it's like a a more gritty sound for you because that implies like, uh, usually implies like slightly underproduced, but it's actually really like really nicely produced, and it does sound. And again, because it's got a synth in it, the the sort of uh, stereotype is to go is oh, it's a bit eighties, but actually it's not. It's all a bit more complicated than that. Um, but it isn't. It's an interesting little song. Uh, it's been in my head for a few days now. Thank you. Um, That's what it's supposed have... to do. It's yeah. supposed to yeah. its way in there. <laughs> if ever you, you think about potentially crossing any kind of lines with your conduct, it will hopefully be in the back of your brain. It's uh, indoctrination of the male species. <laughs> yeah. Steve. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, I feel like that was a dig at me a minute ago, Adam, when you said if it's got a synth to for, to call it a bit eighties, because I'm pretty sure I did that three times on our Resistance is Futile episode. Yeah. Did you? There's some synth and I went, oh, it sounds a bit eighties. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 the Bowie one, and I had to be like, actually, that's a synth sound from that's the 1970s. Actually, actually, actually yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah, does it matter if it's a Dave Smith reissue that was made like three years ago? Then does that make it like very two thousand and like sixteen or something? Oh, Uh-oh. maybe. Oh no. Shit. Oh, we're back to gear again. We're back yeah. to the, spe- the specificities you know, does, of the gear. Does the Dave Smith reissue of the Prophet Six sound like the original Prophet Six? Lots of people I've, say it's, it's a question no I, It's a question I often wake up in the middle of like, thinking about. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I do struggle with that one. Me and Adam think about it like every day, don't we? Almost yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I need to update all of my gear, actually. Let's not talk about gear, because we'll do it for, like, three hours. Um, I did And then you'll go and you, spend a load of money that you shouldn't. Yeah, well. exactly. Like, it's fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, my, my whole point, like, my whole shtick as a musician is to try and create as many sounds as I can on the acoustic guitar, and that's just so I don't have to go out and get, like, a synth <laughs> that makes that sound. But it's so much fun <laughs> buying stuff. It fills the no, gaping Catherine, hole no. inside of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I had a whole year, I think, where all I posted on Instagram w- would be like, got sad, bought some more gear. Oh, look, got sad, bought some more gear. And just things would appear in my studio that I'd forgotten. I'd ordered, that does like, sound like you're talking morning. about drugs, Catherine. <laughs> got, got, yeah, sad, got sad, got gear. bought some more gear. <laughs> <laughs> but gear that's still sitting in front of me looking nice and shiny. Oh, I wish we could see it. Does it all get used? No, not at the same time. I, I'm not got Rick Wakeman yet. Oh, that. yes. I've not quite got there. But is there any gear that's sort of, you know, you bought one night that you were sad and it's sort of sat there for the last three years untouched because I've got a great sampler with that sort of affliction on it. Do you know know what? Actually, the thing I've used the least recently is the Arturia Matrix Brute and I played it loads on tour with Simple Minds and then they sent me one when I came back um, and shamefully, please don't be listening to this, people from Arturia, haven't used it since I came back from tour. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, as penance, your next album's going to have to be all made on that it one will, instrument. It will be. I'm nodding furiously. <laughs> um, I tasked you with the absolutely horrendous um, task of doing a top 10 Manix songs. 
Now, interestingly, most people have sort of taken uh, sometimes up until the episode. So we've had people go like, yeah, these are my top 16 because I couldn't do 10. Uh, here's a theme. Here's me inventing double A sides because I'm cheating. And they've taken like a couple of weeks. Catherine, you were emailing me in 10 minutes. Here's the 10. <laughs> yeah, here it is. Is that something that you just have like... You know, may- maybe On a spreadsheet part- somewhere already. Part of the obsessiveness, you just have that top ten ready to go. I've been doing this for like you know twenty years, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited because this will be the first time that there's zero chance that a song I haven't heard now. Yeah, unless you've gone for a B side that I haven't heard, I suppose. But you know, when we were doing episodes with people with guests on, when we were only at Lifeblood, anything post Lifeblood I hadn't heard ever in my entire life. So I'd be like. I don't know what that song is. It's a mystery to me. Yeah. The first time I'll be like, oh, yes, I know that one. one, (laughs) I think it's one B-side, I think. That's it. I I have seen the list and I have uh, deliberately then scrubbed it from my memory because I want to be surprised when we go through it. Um, Shall we go through it? Should we start at 10 and then go down to one? Are they in any particular order? I was going to say, did I put it in an order? I think it was no particular order. Okay. Start wherever you like. Am I supposed to have it in front of me too? Absolutely. Open my email. <sighs> where is it? You mean your long spreadsheet where you've uh, ranked every single manic song, <laughs> given it a score? Okay. In no particular order. That. Okay, we're going to start with faster then. Bang. Yeah. I mean, banger. yeah. What a hot banger. When did yeah. you first hear faster? Well, that's my gateway, gateway drug song. So that's why I put it first. Oh, they, that, was that the first thing you heard by them? The first thing I heard on wow. the radio, thought, what the hell is this? That is quite a singular moment in their um, discography to be kind of introduced to them by, I suppose. They never really did anything that sounded like it again. Well, they didn't really like it either. It wasn't... Oh, really? Because it was. it's like that age when you're kind of a bit sort of... You're sort of testing your ears in a way and kind of making yourself feel more, more sonically uncomfortable. You know, you're still listening to your parents' records essentially, but you're trying to kind of like push away from that. I wasn't sure what I thought of it, but I knew that it fascinated me and it made me feel something really weird. And I didn't know what they were talking about, most importantly. It was kind of, you know, the Plath and Pinsir, Mensa. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, 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 basically? And anything <laughs> that makes me go, what, 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 what in life. <laughs> is what I kind of throw myself into for the next 10 years. So it was as much the kind of lyrical obtuseness and the abrasiveness of the sound that made me feel really uncomfortable rather than going, oh, I love that. It's such a nice song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Isn't Faster pretty? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't the Holy Bible a really nice listen, guys? Yeah. <laughs> and whenever I hear it now, it just makes me feel like that all over again. It's got that real kind of Proustian Madeline moment. It just makes me feel sick and excited and a bit scared and just like full of possibility. And, you know, I still feel like that when I hear them play it which is mm. you know your first question was what is music that's music like that's what it does isn't it it's just incredible yeah. yeah that song has reached a lot of top tens as well i think that's probably one of the most prevalent songs isn't it in terms of for sure love, it's still still podcast still my number one uh as far as our top tens that we've released go it's kind of conceptually emblematic isn't it as well it's like if you had to kind of pick a song that's got all the ingredients of what 
the manics are if you had to explain them to someone that was an alien and hadn't heard them it's like well that's sort of a little bit of everything that is what they are that other bands aren't that makes any sense at all yeah no that does make sense yeah i I actually don't think it's the best sort of um uh, uh the best sort of marker for their overall sound or the sound that they're most famous for maybe but it's definitely like as a statement of their intent message, as a band yeah. and the way that they message things. That's why I love it because it's not inviting and it is kind of like, it makes you work for it too. And I, I feel like that's everything that they are as a band too, in terms of you're going to become a fan of them. They're not trying to offer you a nice comforting experience. They're challenging you. And but frankly, you know, fuck off and go and listen to Genesis if you want to have a nice, like easy <laughs> listening time. Um, so I feel like that is a really good like litmus test for people. If you want to be a fan of the Manix, you should listen to that first. Yeah, yeah Adam, fuck off and go listen to Genesis. Yeah, I need that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I, need... I quite like that actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we put we put worse things on a t-shirt, guys. I'm just saying. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's probably like my prejudice about Genesis thinking of like the Phil Collins era, and I know that for many prog fans, they are a really important experimental band. But for me, I can't stop thinking about them as like jesus he knows me kind of era which i do love as the song but yeah no, they, they are they are bollocks <laughs> they are just like prog nonsense to me that them and yes cannot stand cannot stand yes well, i'm um, a big fan of yes Am I, I don't think so that? no you wrote james... a song called yes that's what yeah, i'm thinking of that guys <laughs> yeah that's it there it is james is a fan of genesis imagine uh, if yes that. was actually about the band yes yes yeah. <laughs> it is isn't it <laughs> yes. yes. I dress, yeah. I wash, and I still wear a cape, and say, Thank "You playing?" I'm trying to. I can't do that off the cuff. You see, but don't try and be funny, Catherine. It doesn't seem. Uh, number nine. Oh God, I'm supposed to be looking at my list. People give in. Yeah. The opening track from Resistance is futile. Oh. I'm a big fan of opening tracks. I think, but for, for this is quite a personal resonance to me. Um, and I said I wasn't going to talk about personal stuff, but again, like Resistance of Futile came out in the middle of my shit show of the five years, and I remember coming out of hospital, um, and I just had another miscarriage, and this came on the radio, and I was just absolutely grief-stricken and deeply just in a horrible, dark place, and it just, I don't know, it, it I was bawling my eyes out in the car, listening to my favourite bands, knowing that they would call and check up on me later and what a weird contradictory load of feelings that that was and I still can't listen to that song without thinking about that moment so it's really special to me it's um I needed to hear that at that moment in my life and it felt like that kind of like emotional context is often very important when like listening to music there are some songs again yeah where like I can tell you exactly where I was when I what what was going on in my life when I heard them yeah and that whole tour for me was really about them like kind of holding me up you know in many ways you know they really I think you know Dave talked about this in his episode didn't he about it's a family once you kind of you're in it's like the mafia or something (laughs) And, and you know they really looked out for me and James especially you know check in on me and sometimes I, I used to joke and say like I felt like there was a Nicky Wirecam in my room because you know every time 
I was hitting a particularly dark place in my life, I'd get a call from them and they'd ask me to do something with them. Mm. When I, I just needed that lift so desperately. Um, so that whole tour, you know, the Resistance is Futile tour, the arena tour was just, it felt like them holding me up. And sometimes it was the only thing that was getting me through the day. Um, and that was really special to me, you know, especially having grown up with them and then them turning out to be these wonderfully empathetic, lovely people. Um, yeah, so that whole record really, but that that song has that kind of emotional impact for me. I think it's brilliant. Just a really, really great, great tune. Yeah, that's amazing. They're good um, openers as well. They love a good, like you say about statement of intent, that is something the Manics thrive on, is the first song being like, yeah, that's what this album's about. Here we go. I should have put yes on then. Oh, I, f- I feel like I want to change it now. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, this always happens. <laughs> you do have, a, I'm looking at the list now, you do have another opener on there. I'm trying to work out what it is. <laughs> is it? You have, and, you have slash and burn on the list of have. course yeah and again for probably the same reason in that it's it's very evocative of a particular time in my life and i often use manix as armor i call it like emotional armor if interesting I'm, if i need a bit of a kind of kick up the ass um or just a kind of mental focus or if i'm going into a difficult situation i'll always put on generation terrace because it just makes oh. you feel invincible it's like how can you not listen to slash and burn and feel like I can put up with any kind of shit and I can get through this and I can do this. And yeah, Generation Terrorist is my kind of armor record, like going to battle, dealing with twats, basically. <laughs> like you're doing tonight, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. listen to this about yeah. an hour and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's been on rotation. <laughs> That's amazing though. Yeah. And it's a banger. It, yeah. Lest we forget. Yeah, I mean, it, lest, lest we forget it doesn't it just make you want to kind of dress up and like put tons of hairspray on and loads of eyeliner and uh, get get my feather boa out exactly yeah, absolutely I'm wearing tons of hairspray right now i mean but... when when we started actually... this yeah <laughs> when we started this pod this podcast Catherine. so i basically my 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 role was i knew three manic songs basically from the radio that was my level of knowledge of the manics and so hearing slash and burn and well, that whole album, I was like, what the fuck's going on here? This isn't what I expected. This is like, this is mad. Because I knew, I knew Design for Life, Tolerate, and Your Love Alone is Not Enough. I knew those three songs. You, this yeah. is mad, says the man who has Muse album covers on his wall. Is that yeah. a Is that a diss? <laughs> Make it that what you will. <laughs> Adam's loving that it. That made me so happy. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> also, Adam, you can have to put down the timestamp there for the bleep. Oh, yeah. Because Adam has to bleep that, that word on this podcast. We mention them so often because they are Lucas's favourite band. They're my Mannix, uh, basically. They're my yeah, Adam yeah, Mannix, yeah. is the obsession yeah. and the know every single fucking inside and out. Surely and we there's will a... never talk about them on this podcast. Well, I was going to say, surely there's a direct line between <laughs> yes. them and Generation Terrorists in terms of the kind of overblown guitar, very much at the forefront. Like, I could see how a fan of Muse would enjoy Generation And I loved it. I really enjoyed Generation Terrorists yeah. when we first yeah. listened to it. It's dropped in esteem since, purely because some of the other albums later, I think are even better. But Generation Terrorists was a shocker for me. Because I expected, like, quote unquote, to be very, to be disparaging and use lazy terminology dad rock was what yeah. i expected coming into the says man. the man with muse albums again <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> so that's that was what i expected and was proven 
to be categorically, <laughs> categorically wrong. But that was what I basically expected. And was like, oh fuck, this isn't this is not at all what I expected. It's a fucking like not glam rock album. Yeah. It's a glam rock album. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm completely lost as to where we are on your list because we've done it out of order. We did. People, we've done people giving laughter and Saturn burn. Yes. Okay. What's next? You you, you pick. Okay. So uh, uh, rewind the film. Oh, this is, see, this is another emo one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is probably why it's quite easy for me to pick the 10, actually, because it was kind of like significant emotional moments that the, the band has kind of soundtracked for me rather than favourite songs. That mm. might be the theme. So Rewind the Film kind of came out around the time my dad died quite suddenly. Um, so for me, it was, it was kind of emotionally resonant in, in that regard. And I think Nikki's always really great at writing lyrics like This Is Yesterday about the kind of sweet nostalgia of childhood and the naivety and kind of this sense of wanting to go back to that sense of just purity and perfectness that we have. And I just think the lyric is really beautiful. And obviously at the time was very much wanting to go back to, mm. a, to a place where my dad still was. Um, and again, that was, yeah, there's been a lot of crying listening to Manix over the last few years, actually. Mm-hmm. It's, and I'm not a very cryy person. Um, and I think as well, people don't think of them as like an, necessarily an emotional band in, in the strict mm. sense of the word, because they don't write kind of autobiographically and emotionally in the, in, the, in the kind of normal sense of the world. But I guess we yeah. build our own emotions around them and they, they resonate for us personally. But I just think it's a really beautiful record. And I remember last time I saw them, probably before I worked with them as well, was at um, the number six festival in Wales um, with a load of my mates who are also massive Mannix fans down the front. And I, I remember we were having it, as Dom Gawley says, who <laughs> I was there with, um, so much I punched myself in the face uh, in the mosh pit. <laughs> what? <Amazing>. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because we were having Not just because you were so excited. Just like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bearing in mind that I'm down the front with like a 40-something-year-old man, journalist, and another 30-something-year-old man, and we're just going completely nuts in the mosh pit, so much so that everyone is like running away from us because they're like scared <laughs> that they're going to get like elbowed or I don't know what they thought was going to happen. It was a very conservative audience. And, um, and were you doing that to the song Rewind the Film? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's very weird. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, I can't remember what it was, to be honest. It was probably... Um, most cycle emptiness or something i don't know mm. oh yeah rewind the film is a beautiful uh song sad song happy song beautiful song uh the the next one on your list is almost as as far in the other direction to rewind the film as you can get which is jackie collins existential question time oh. so good and the I, best I, name I, of a record ever <laughs> just a really brilliant lyric i think um and also it was kind of one of the songs that 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 drew me back into the Mannix. I think I kind of went away from them a little bit for a while. I didn't sort of feel so compelled as I think they would probably say themselves. There was probably a point where they weren't so into what they were doing either. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, yeah. and that really kind of reeled me back in again. And I just think it's a great example of, you know, one of the finest lyrics. And I love the wry humour in it too. I love, I, I think it's much underspoken about how fucking funny the Mannix are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really funny. Yeah, we uh, we talked about that with um, we had Simon Price on for our journal for Plague Lovers, uh, 
episodes and um the humor in those like final richie lyrics is is really prevalent actually there's like actual jokes in the, <laughs> hasn't he written the joke ha ha in the yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> um and then and then the song after that Catherine, you're you're gonna have to explain here <laughs> uh yourself Genuinely, What's that doing there then? What is I, that doing there? I genuinely <laughs> think if I, if I was forced at gunpoint to pick my favourite Mannix album, if I could only have one album, it would probably be Gold Against the Soul. And people really? think I'm taking the piss. Um, but what I is just, it that speaks to you about about that album? Because well, I really like heavy rock music. Mm. Surprisingly, again. <laughs> album um, number three. And. I just, again, I just remember I used to always like spend hours like lying in the bath listening to this um, when I was about 13, just all the time on repeat. And I I just think it's a brilliant song. And I love the fact that it's one of Sean's kind of top lines as well. I, I felt like I needed to kind of rep him in there because he is, you know, much undersung in terms of his songwriting yeah. abilities. Um, I just love it. Luke's brilliant. I like the verse. Top line is just astonishingly good why the quizzical face yourself is pretty so many of my girlfriends love that song too you know what it's just it's just not uh i think you're the first person to put it in the top 10 uh for for us and it's not a song that i see sort of uh bandied about as even a highlight on that album i think that's the only Um, song off gold against the soul that's been on a top 10 that isn't don't even worry no, about it <laughs> right <laughs> i'm gonna ask the question of how many women have you interviewed because i wonder what it's something to do with that because i think for me and certainly the girls that i know that really love it too it speaks to a certain kind of self-loathing that you have around that age like you know 12, yeah. 13 and i think it's again the manics doing what they do best which is like inhabiting that kind of female psyche um and i don't know you know how this was kind of written lyrically I imagine it may have had some of Richie's kind of the way that he was able to kind of project himself into that kind of mindset is in there because it does so perfectly encapsulate that kind of female teenage, um, yeah, self-loathing, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, We have interviewed, including you, three women. Which I don't know how that stacks up against the guys. One, two, three. I think we've interviewed five it's less. guys. It's definitely less. Yeah. You need to definitely get Jill, you need to get Gillian Porter on here. She knows everything about the Manics. Obviously, she's worked with them since she was, I think, about seventeen. So, yeah, she would be brilliant. Yeah, you can include uh, our crossover is... episode with the Idols cast as well. We've got. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. But yeah. as well. We got Haley as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry for forgetting you, Haley, if you're listening. <laughs> She's not. Yourself, yourself is also uh, the spookiest song that they've put out as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they do love sure. a spooky sounds, song, don't they? It sounds like a Halloween song. Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> then the next song uh, is, is, is Little Baby Nothing. I mean, I love this song before I got to sing it. This has got absolutely nothing to do with me. <laughs> Being specifically asked. your version you love <laughs> yeah <laughs> no you can't beat the original you really Very can't true. i can only try and and do my best um impression whenever i sing it but it's just again for the same reason i think i love yourself it, it's just it just bespeaks like i say that kind of female experience in a way that it's just so surprising for a band full of blokes um, yeah yeah to be able to do and i always love this this song it's something that that resonates i guess with the female fans in particular 
it's just brilliant brilliantly written um and i am so privileged to get to sing it um you know in lieu of tracy lords um whenever they give me the call and, and, and like an inspired uh, sort of decision to get tracy lords in to sing uh that bit it really like adds like a whole extra layer of of uh context i think well, it was written for kylie minogue but apparently yeah. she, she turned it down um although there is one existing recording of her doing it i think live at shepherd's empire once there there is yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's a little iffy it's <laughs> not a great recording yeah yeah <laughs> that was a polite way of saying it's a little iffy <laughs> <laughs> um uh the the next song is uh oh it depends now this is this is interesting in terms of uh steve and lucas whether or not you've heard this uh it's called love torn asunder and isn't this if i may be wrong about this because i am by no means a kind of walking encyclopedia of manix facts but i think i'm right in saying that james wrote this solo lyrically oh okay I have yet to, this is part of our, uh, one of our selections for our B-Sides episode that we're doing next week. That um, I heard I it today to, for the first time. Yes, I have yet yes. to dig into now. the context and research for it. I didn't know that, that this was a James Derrick. I had always heard that Ocean I Spray think, was the first one. I think it is, but oh. I may be wrong in that, I think. <laughs> That's, that would be very interesting to me if it was, because it's a very richy sounding lyric just that line love torn us under (laughs) i i really want to google it now and look it up because i'm so absolutely certain somebody told me that it was but i I reckon judging from lucas's hands i think he's already on it um (laughs) yeah i don't know where i'd even look though like where am i going to start looking up the the credits just paste it on a like one of the facebook groups and you'll get an answer in like 10 seconds yeah Yeah. pretty quickly (laughs) Um, or or say that someone else wrote it and someone will correct you that's the quicker way to get information be wrong on the internet and someone will correct you instantly i had to check a credit um about a month ago because i've done um my version of small black flowers is like on one of the bonus um seven inches that's coming with the album and i had to check like how they credit it in terms of like lyrics and um And it was so interesting because it, it kind of erupted this weird internet fight because in one version of the record, it's credited to all four kind of names equally. And then there's a, mm. an updated reissue version where they separate kind of music and lyrics out. And it's like, which do we go for? Oh. It was contentious. But literally about 10 people replied to me within about two minutes. So <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the I place l- to go, the Facebook groups. Love the Manix fan base. That's so on brand for the Manix fan base. Um, Guys, can I confess I, I, something? When yeah, I searched on. for that song just now, yeah, would love torn us under. Yeah, no. I thought it said love. I thought it said love torn asunder. Right. One word asunder. Yeah. It's, not, is it? it's us oh. under. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah, a confession. What, what a fucking mad confession. Are you happy to I'm, say that on mic, Luke? I'm really. <laughs> I'm gonna put. I'm gonna put my stand. I don't know what words I'm saying. Yeah, neither, neither, neither do I most of the time. Adam Carroll the podcast. Time. Yeah, I can. I'll derail it again in a bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, a weird little song. What what makes it sort of like so up there for you, Catherine? I, I just think it's absolutely beautiful. I, I, what what makes it up there? It's so difficult to like explain why. Um, I think again, it's just the emotional heft of it, because you know this this a B side for the for the Holy Bible. There wasn't a lot of explicit emotional resonance on that record for me personally 
Um, I know there will be for other people listening. You know, apart from probably this is yesterday, it feels kind of bereft of any. This is weird. Like I have a kind of odd relationship with the Holy Bible because it's almost so it's it's so much at the center of a black hole that it feels like the humanity has left it and that makes it quite a hard record to connect with um it's very sterile is the way that i i I describe it It's, it's such a sterile album that it is sort of devoid of any feelings it's almost like someone just stating facts at you yeah you it's it's kind of like I say, it's kind of like humanity has left the building. And I think as an adult listening to that, perhaps you have a different experience if you listen as a teenager. But for me as an adult listening, I find it pushes me away um, and doesn't reel me in. Whereas Love Torn Asunder, and, and that's why I think I've got it into my head that it's kind of a James song because it feels like the kind of beating heart still of the band is there and it's present on this B-side. Something. Yeah, between. no, I get that, yeah something tender something still wanting and willing to be alive i guess i hate kind of mythologizing a kind of history mm-hmm. of a band but um... <laughs> that's what we're all about on this podcast yeah <laughs> i think half of what we've said is true uh, about the band <laughs> <laughs> i love i love uh, the mythology i'm just i'm just very kind of like loath to do that i guess because i kind of know them as, as people and human beings and I think it's just it's so hard to do that to both mythologize and acknowledge someone's humanity and reality as a person at the same time it's, it's very confusing actually if you've been a if you've been a fan and you want to maintain that kind of um what's the word that kind of um distance yeah and I do always try to maintain that because I I really value still that sense of idolizing them on some level musically and culturally um, and it's, it's a weird juggling act to do that actually for me but I'm still trying <laughs> <laughs> it's more of that balancing thing again you've become very good at having to like balance lots of different <laughs> things at once such as life <laughs> yeah uh again like there's this is such like a mix of tones and vibes this top 10 because the one after love to on a sunday is your love alone is not enough probably like one of the most poppy sort of upbeat kind of tracks that they've done it again needs no explanation i think because it should be in yeah. everyone's top 10 really i mean it's the, you know it's a song that kind of i hate to say this revived their career because that sounds really like condemnatory but sure that, think... that was adam's exact words <laughs> okay i'll let that i'll let that hang then <laughs> <laughs> quote unquote um and just it's really really fucking fun to perform it with them too it's yeah. just so kind of celebratory and yeah it's just oh of course you've done this one with them as well haven't you a fair few times yeah, yeah. it's um i had to learn all, all the words because you think you know the words don't you think you do when you're in the other on the other yeah. side <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but i tell yeah. you it's a different definite different proposition when you've got like twenty thousand people in front of you <laughs> oh my god i remember the first time we did it i think it was manchester arena and James was in my dressing room just before we went on, just kind of, can we just go through it quickly? I don't think he was utterly convinced that I was going to kind of pull it off. <laughs> um, ye of little faith. Like, <laughs> Nicky always knows that I, I never make a mistake. So, um, but no, he made me practice it with him before we went on, just to check. That's great. <laughs> wow. That sounds that terrifying. Yeah, that also sounds terrifying. Just a series of terrifying experiences with the Manic Street Preachers. (laughs) Having James sing in a room with you is just 
he's got you know the kind of sheer force of his voice is just incredible it's you know it's a real privilege to to get to sit in front of him without a microphone and hear him sing it's mm. like yeah pretty you're pretty good like glasses smashing and papers flying around <laughs> everywhere he is like very loud movies. yeah <laughs> compared to me I, i'm not i don't project that much but he doesn't need a microphone actually yeah <laughs> uh and and then uh the last one in your top 10 so number 10 again no particular order it's just the order that we've done it in kevin carter it's just a groovy little number. That's why I picked that it one. It is a groovy little number. It's got yeah, a, that's a great little way trumpet. to explain it. Yeah, it's got the little trumpet. It's got the click, 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 click. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I wanted to represent everybody here. And again, it's like it's one of kind of Sean's shining moments, I think. Yeah. Um, mm. And also, I think I remember James saying something about the fact that he he was never really quite sure what Richie kind of would have made of it because it was like that kind of bossa nova meets this really bleak lyric. Um, mm. And I love that collision of those two. You know, the musical language seems kind of really not congruent with the lyric and that's great that's them oh, that's one of my favorite things that uh that the manics do when, when like the the form and the function are slightly uh disparate is is one of my favorite things that they do yeah i think if you tolerate this is another example of that well i um, think that's born out of the way that they write isn't it partly because the lyrics come first yeah yeah i can't think of another band that does that always that way no, me neither. I've tried it and it, I can't do it. Just it just doesn't compute with me. I can't think of anybody. Do you know what? Probably Bob Dylan did. But he's writing I'm... with himself though, isn't he? Which is really different. So it's That's true. Yeah. So you can't be certain that when he's writing the lyrics, he's not in some way kind of formulating the music at the same time. Whereas yeah. James is being delivered a set, an A4 sheet of paper, and then it's like, bam. Oh, that must be quite intimidating. Actually. I would love Although to know I... if, like, does Nicky have even a melody in his head when he writes those lyrics, or is I... he basically writing like a, a poem? Like he's just writing words completely soundlessly, and going put whatever melody. Like I trust you, do it. I or think it's I evolved think it's... from that. I think it's evolved from that kind of two separate houses to like. I know, isn't it? Am I right in saying like with your love alone, for instance? That's kind of. I think Nicky wrote the chor- choruses or the verses. Um, yeah. So I think it's become less of a kind of, you know, you do the lyrics, I do the music type job, and it's become much more fused together. And I wonder if that's changed the sound, actually. If we were like musicologists, how would we mm. analyse the shift in the kind of form versus function? Well, I guess before very early on, Nicky could barely play an instrument, but he was good with his words, so obviously now he can. <laughs> I'm sure that has changed quite a bit, because he's going to be way more musically minded consciously or subconsciously when writing words. So I'm just talking to myself here. I, th- I think it actually has sort of, I think it has changed the music actually thinking about it because uh, sort of like, like Nicky wrote uh, all of Liverpool revisited, right? So, but the way Nicky writes music, he, you know, comes up with the chords. So that, that whole piece is then sort of centered around the chord shifts and, you know, like a very sort of like standard song. Whereas then you think something like, yes, where James just gets, the lyrics and then comes up with you know it's all built around a riff rather than sort of i'm wondering if james is more tonal than than nicky and, and if you mm. listen to something like distant colors where it's all james as well you get this kind of i would be super interested to know how he writes when he's writing alone do the words come first or... oh yeah yeah that's interesting I would put money on James doing the lyrics last. 
or not not like last but but the music coming first but then he's used to being delivered lyrics who knows who well, knows ask him when we, we just, get him on you know yeah sure oh, yeah, yeah yeah sure yeah, as did james james would love coming on this <laughs> I mean, fucking <laughs> nonsense <laughs> Uh, Catherine, I, th- I think that kind of we've kept you for, for far too long. I think you know you must have actual important things to be doing. Um, so thank you like so much for coming on. I, I, I could talk about the Mannix for the next five years probably and get loads Just, of facts yeah. wrong as well. I'm going to get like nasty emails going. He didn't write that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. You can come back next week and the week after, and we'll just keep talking about Mannix. Um, <laughs> We should point out that your new single, Show Your Face, is out. Uh, it's streaming everywhere. The singles just come out uh, everywhere now, don't they? It's now in the BBC Six Music playlist. Is that right? I saw... It got playlisted yesterday. Yeah. I was That's pretty amazing. happy. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, there's also uh, In Memory of My Feelings, which is the album that you did with uh, Bernard Butler. Um, I, there's your podcast, uh, the Art of Losing, which is sort of like almost kind of a, is it kind of a sister project to the new album that's coming out? Yeah, it was kind of supposed to be like an explainer project. Um, and then the album got put back, obviously. So I was kind of explaining something that people couldn't listen to, which is really weird and meta. Yeah, I like that. The, con- <laughs> the context before the actual thing that, the context that, that was born out of the context. That's very interesting. So yeah, I mean, you've had Patrick Jones on that podcast, right? Yes, he was my first guest, actually. Ah, yeah definitely so yeah and then when is it march that uh the art of losing your second album comes out yeah it's finally out but there'll be track a month between now and then so you'll kind of get to hear all will be revealed in the meantime and then there's the duet with james on the record that i'm sure everyone's excited to. is that one of the ones that's coming out before or is that one of the ones that you're saving for the record as of today i'm not entirely sure because we just mixed up the schedule a little bit due to lockdown and he was meant to be shooting his part in the video today, but lockdown. So it's happening, I think, next week instead. So it depends when the video's finished as to when people are able to hear that, but certainly by March. Cool. Or you could pre-order the record and take potluck. Yeah, yeah, do that, definitely do that. Because there's some really nice, like, um, there's like the special edition three CD version, and then there's like the gold the vinyl gold one, version. Yeah. yeah, so there's loads of... Uh, cool and leopard print. For- vinyl as well is there no way there is right well yeah the leopard print vinyl's got and that's got my version of small black flowers on the b-side as well lovely and all of the leopard print that's the decision made for me adam's just ordered it the most (laughs) important thing about the leopard print though let me say is not just any leopard print it is the leopard print for my suit that i wore on the resistance's futile tour excellent you had a, a leopard print suit that's cool as fuck. I love that so much. Where do you even find a leopard print suit? Well, I never leave the house, so all of my clothes are from ASOS. Right, okay, right. cool. So I've also ordered a leopard print suit. <laughs> yeah. And as well as your new record. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, it was like a long time in the planning. We've had so many people. It's been so frustrating on Twitter going, you should have the anchor S on. Yeah. Get the anchor yeah. S on. Talk he to keeps Catherine. saying no. Wouldn't, wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't it be good if we got Catherine on? And I have to be like, we will. You just need to be patient. So I'm really glad that we finally got to uh, sit down and chat. Um, we need to do our sort of plugs, don't we? Which is that we're, we're on Twitter at Manix Podcast and Catherine you're on Twitter and uh, I can't remember your handle but if you search the Anchoress 
the underscore Angaras. Yeah, that's the one. I knew it had an underscore somewhere. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, Manix Podcast, Facebook dot uh, com slash Manix Podcast. We have some uh you know if you want to support us financially we have some stupid shit merch with one cool design that you can get on like a shower curtain did you see that guy who was posting about the fucking shower curtain he was gonna buy godspeed to you yeah um you can also <laughs> you can also drop us any kind of donation that you like all gratefully received on coffee.com ko hyphen fi.com slash do you love us um and that's it, really. There's only one thing sort of left to say, which is sort of goodbye. And also, uh, we uh, live in urban hell and we destroy rock and roll. Thanks, Catherine. Bye. Bye. Bye.